listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Katrina Blowers and Tom Tilly here with you. Tom, today we're going to be talking about one of your very favourite <laughs> topics of all time, the royal family. Yeah, I've taken the time to read Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, so I'm going to give my thoughts about that. I think of all the different media products they've created from the Oprah interview to the Netflix series, I think the book is the most important one to really understand Harry and the true depth of his story and the big choices he's made in the last couple of years. So, yeah, we'll go deep on it, hey? I can't wait. I've listened to nearly all of the audiobook, but I know that you've got some pretty spicy thoughts. <laughs> can't wait to hear all about it after yeah. today's headlines. Yeah, my feelings are way too strong on this subject. I don't know why. Anyway, here we go. It's Tuesday, January the 17th. Nick Kyrgios has pulled out of the Australian Open because of a knee injury. Obviously pretty brutal. In one of the most important tournaments of my career, and so it hasn't been easy at all. Yeah, I can't imagine how he would have made that decision yesterday. The 27-year-old had to make that call on day one of the tournament. He's been struggling with a tear in a meniscus, which then caused a cyst. He had a procedure to drain it, but it was still flaring up after that exhibition match with Novak Djokovic on Friday. So he had to pull the pin. What do you think of that, Tom? Do you think it was because, you know, he said that he had uh, another hit around the court yesterday with Kokonakis and, mm. and was pushed around a bit more? Do you think maybe he really realised he wasn't up to scratch or do you think this is legit? Oh yeah, I think this is definitely legit. Like he, he'd been wanting this badly. He he made the final of Wimbledon last year, then he got to the quarterfinal of the US Open. This was the big one for him. And so apparently the conversation went down with the coach, What went something like this. It was like, can you survive, you know, the six or seven games it takes to get to the finals? And he said, no. So mm. it's a massive loss for Kyrgios, a big loss for the tournament as well. Also comes after Isla Tomjanovic pulled out over the weekend, which is sad news for another top Australian player. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a shocker. Um, and he wanted to be fit. And you know how it goes with Kyrgios. There's five setters. It's chaos. You need to be all mm. in. So Djokovic will take the court today, which will be really interesting to watch. So will Alex Deminor, another Australian. And it's going to hit 36 degrees. Oh, yikes. I can't even imagine. It is a different heat to Queensland heat, a bit more of a dry heat, mm. but still what a shocker of a condition to play under. And yesterday we brought you the news of the plane crash in Nepal and it turns out that the Australian on board was actually a friend of mine. Oh, it's just awful, awful news, yeah. Tom. Got a text message about it yesterday. So it's this guy, you'll see his name in the news, um, Myron Love. Um, we all called him Muzz. He's a 29-year-old. He's a primary school teacher. He was a, um, a very strong cyclist. He's a surfer, traveller, a great mate to many people. He's just one of those blokes who is just bursting with raw, untapped energy. He was just great to be around. Um, so it's just, it's just such an unlikely, bizarre way to die. So there's just so much shock and grief going around Sydney right now. Never met a more genuine bloke in my life and um, to hear that news, just super, super sad. Yeah, so it's just full on. Um, that's another one of his mates, Sam Smith, speaking on Channel 9. Yeah, so uh, Yeti Airlines have said that there were no survivors among the 72 passengers on board. 68 have been confirmed dead with four still missing and there's no official word, we should say, from DFAT yet on love, although hopes aren't high. Experts are looking at videos of how the plane came down and they say it looks like pilot error at this stage. Yeah. 
And there's been a brutal sacking in rugby union. This is a crazy story. So Rugby Australia has sacked the Wallabies coach, Dave Rennie, um, just eight months out from the Rugby World Cup. Um, and they've brought in a former Wallabies coach, Eddie Jones. So, yeah, very tough news for Dave Rennie, who was sacked immediately yesterday morning. Unfortunately, you know, we weren't we weren't winning enough. Yeah, so that's the bloke who headed up the decision, Hamish McLennan. He's the chairman of Rugby Australia. So the reason this is so hectic is it's all about the World Cups in Rugby Union. So Dave Rennie had been coaching for three years, building up to the World Cup later this year in France. And he just wasn't winning enough games, but it wasn't just that. It was also the unlikely situation where Eddie Jones suddenly became available. So he coached the Wallabies back between 2001, 2005. He got sacked at the time, but since then he's gone on to coach in South Africa, Japan, and then he got England to the World Cup final at the last World Cup. So he's gone out and had all this amazing experience and basically become one of the best coaches in the world. Suddenly he was off contract and... They've gone for it. Here's um, actually a little snippet from what Eddie Jones said at, back in 2005 when he was sacked from the Wallabies then. Yeah, I want to become a better coach and, and coach the Wallabies again. It's, it's the greatest honour and privilege you can have. Yeah, and that's exactly what he did. And so here he is back in the job. Can you imagine the redemption story if he gets them back on, uh, on form again? How incredible and what nostalgia for all those rugby fans. Italy's most wanted mafia boss has been arrested in Sicily. More than 100 of Italy's security forces took part to bring in Matteo Messina Denaro, a man who's been on the run for 30 years. So it was pretty young when he went into hiding. Now he's 60 years old and he was going to a doctor's appointment when he was uh, busted. Denaro has been tried in absentia. That means when he was in hiding and he was convicted of dozens of murders and faces multiple life sentences. So he's uh, actually accused of two bombings in Sicily that took place in 92, which resulted in the murders of two top anti-mafia prosecutors. I was reading about how they managed to keep him in hiding for so long. Apparently, he's a bit of a lover of the ladies and a lot of his girlfriends kept him in hiding. Um, but this guy, you know, if it's true, is accused of doing some pretty shocking things. Mm. So a mafia turncoat had a young son and this guy is accused of murdering this young boy, strangling him before his body was then dissolved in a vat of acid. So it's kind of straight from the Hollywood mafia playbook. And Italy's Prime Minister has also weighed in saying, it represents a great victory of the state. So a big win, I guess, for anti-mafia authorities mm. in Italy. Yeah, lock him up. All right, in just a moment, going deep on Prince Harry's memoir. So, Tom, I guess so much has now been made about the revelations contained within Spare. I mean, we've heard ad nauseum about Harry's cocaine use, his loss of virginity in a field, mm. calling Camilla dangerous, admitting to killing 25 people in Afghanistan. But I guess beyond all of that, do you think it was a book that was well-written? Yeah, the book was well-written and I really enjoyed reading it. I've been really looking forward to the book. I was a little bit tired of the media interviews. And to be really honest with you, I actually couldn't watch the whole Netflix series. I just found the first episode so boring, to be honest. But for some reason, 
And I think it's the power of what a memoir can be. I was actually really looking forward to reading this. And I think it was well written. Initially, though, I was a bit uncomfortable with some of the writing. I know that there'd been a a ghostwriter involved and I felt like the drama of the story had been juiced up a little bit. There were some, you know, writing devices, the repetition of air and the spare, the way they set up that initial Mm -hmm. meeting between Harry and his brother and his father as this cliffhanger opener. Like these are just classic memoir tricks. I even use some of them myself. (laughs) So I saw a bit too much of that for... (laughs) For someone who is not, you know, he's not a writer, you know, so clearly this was really turbocharged with the help of the ghostwriter, which I was a a little bit suspicious of to start with. But then I think it it settled into a really strong and fairly authentic kind of voice. Yeah. And and this is the thing, you've written a memoir, I've written a memoir. Mm. So I also was looking for some of those literary tricks and they really stood out to me. And one thing that did absolutely stand out for me was just how much of an absolute tell-all this seems Mm. to be. There were things that I thought were even unnecessary for him to go into to the extent that he did. And when I was writing my memoir, my editor said to me, because I was super uncomfortable with sharing a lot of my life. I knew I had to, but it made me feel awkward. And my editor said, look, it's like a layer of an onion thing. You don't have to divulge every single layer in order to present the onion. Why do you reckon he gave us the whole onion and more? (laughs) Well, yeah, speaking of unpeeling things, he talked about his frozen penis. He talked about losing (laughs) his virginity. He talked about doing cocaine, mushrooms, ayahuasca, loads of weed. (laughs) Yeah, he really spilled it. And yeah, I think some of that stuff wasn't necessary because you do have to choose the details you include in a book. And the real test is, are they important for getting across the core of the story? And so you've got to wonder with some of those sort of extremely candid details, whether it was about selling the book. Yeah. And whether he can reconcile with his family now that some of those things are out there. And I don't know that he can. Yeah. Well, That's probably the biggest question of this whole conversation is what this book's done for the family relationship. I think when you read a lot of those comments in context that we've seen reported in the media, as you would expect, it it softens them a little bit. You know, some of the details say, for example, that he may even as the spare have to donate some of his organs to William at some point because he's the heir. Like Mm. that wasn't thrown up as this huge thing. These are just tiny details mentioned in passing. Probably some of the harsher stuff was, even though it was a tiny part of the book, was for Camilla. He did not paint her in a good light at all. And the way he he told that first story where it was misreported in the press that he had a drug addiction and had gone to rehab. And he claims that that story was then, rather than denied by Charles and Camilla, was spun in their favour to be a sort of a hard luck story for Charles as a single father with a wayward son. And so Harry is still really angry about that. 
Yeah. And this was, to me, as a journalist, a really fascinating aspect of his book was his dissection of the media and how, in his words, they've distorted and twisted mm. and even made up stories involving him. There's one story in particular where he talks about an interview. I think it was the very first interview, mm. one-on-one, that he gave to a journalist in Lesotho. And he decided to do this because he wanted to highlight the poverty and hunger that was going on in that country. Yeah. But the journalist only wanted to talk about Princess Diana. The fact that he hadn't really thought that through, to me, smacked of naivety. Or do you think it was the fact that the palace just hadn't given him proper media training? Well, that was from memory on his gap year. So he's already, you know, 18, 19 years old by that point. So yeah, I think that was a bit naive to think that this journalist is only going to ask him about the charity work. He already knew by then that journalists mostly focus on the bad things. So a journalist is going to sit down and bring up the most challenging things possible. That's how our job works. Um, ideally, you you do it ethically, unlike a lot of the reporters in in Britain. But that journalist probably pushed the boundaries, but, you know, was always going to ask some of the challenging questions amongst the nicer mm. questions about the work he was doing. But what came out in the book that I probably didn't truly grasp was how often and how intensely the media intruded on so many aspects of his life. There's almost nothing he could do without at least the fear or the paranoia of being watched. And that was really full on because it started so young, you know, right through his teenage mm. years. And that just affected all of his decision-making. So I, I think before reading the book, I was like, okay, it's part of being a royal. It got very intense and the narrative around your mother and the trauma of the way she died must have made it so full on for him. But I also sort of thought you must get used to it at some point and get on with it. But it just never did because whenever he was struggling and finding a bit of hope, like meeting a new girlfriend, it would often be ruined by being outed by the press. So it genuinely just ate away at his happiness day after day, year after year. And this is why I am still struggling to get why he's done this, why he's written this memoir, why he signed this deal with Netflix and Spotify, given his utter hatred of the media. I mean, he paints them as a pack of dogs, bloodthirsty dogs who yeah. have not only hounded his mother to death, but then feasted on her body. That's what he says in his book. On the one hand, I get that he wants to tell his story on his own terms. But on the other hand, I look at, say, William and Kate. William has had the same mm. scrutiny, been under the same amount of spotlight. They've handled things so differently. Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of this, Tom? Well, I get why he wants to tell his own story because for his whole life, it's, you know, it's been lies and misinformation about him told by people without his interests at heart. So I totally get that he wants to control his own narrative. And, you know, the media is not as simple as those, those same low lives that chase his mother into the tunnel are not the people producing a Netflix series or editing his book. You know, the media is not just one homogenous pack of F-wits. So he's allowed to work with the media without it being a, a contradiction. The book, I think, is a fair call. It's, it's some of the other media appearances they've made that I don't appreciate as much, you know. So if it, had, if it had just been the book and a few rounds of publicity to sell the book and then this, you know, fairly honest 
fairly revealing portrayal of his life. I think this is pretty solid. The Oprah interview, then all the different podcasts and places they've appeared in the meantime, like I kind of wish the book came first and I think that would have done them a lot more favours. I hope this might be the final round of the big Harry and Meghan telling our story circus. Like surely, (laughs) surely this has got to be the full stop. I I feel like it should be and it probably won't. Mm. (laughs) But I guess, look, (laughs) in my mind it's like it's this. We talk about this. He's done the media. This dies down. All eyes will be on the coronation in May and whether Charles, William and Harry can reconcile by then. If they can somehow, you know, find the humility to offer some kind of olive branch to him despite (laughs) the hectic amount of details he's put in this book that sort of shows them in in a pretty harsh light, I really hope there could be a positive ending to this feud by the coronation and then maybe it calms down and they can actually enter this new phase of life, all of them, on both sides of the Atlantic that they've all been longing for. Something needs to happen in order for that to change. I don't think the palace can continue with this no comment strategy. I think they can and I think they will. I think they might end up making a few statements, but I think they probably already would have done it by now. I think ultimately what I've come away, I've listened to the audiobook and hearing him narrate his story in his own words is yeah. really what quite powerful like? and special. Because I, re- I read the I book. Really, like you feel like, yeah, you feel like he's having a conversation with you. He narrates so beautifully. So you walk away from it feeling like you've sparked a friendship with mm. Harry. And I feel like he'd be an awesome guy to hang out yeah. with. Ultimately, how I feel though is he's a little boy lost. He's still mm. a little boy deep inside who's, it's almost like his mother just died yesterday. And in all those years that he even refused to accept that she was dead and that mm. she just staged her own disappearance is deeply upsetting. But he's always been this little boy in search of his tribe and in search of belonging. And maybe he's found that in Hollywood. And I really do genuinely wish him all the best. No, I don't think he's found his tribe in Hollywood. I think he's run into a bunch of bloodsuckers who are just hanging out with him because he's Prince Harry and I don't trust any of them, you know. Tyler Perry, James Corden, sure. It's just Hollywood's a strange place for this story to end, I think, because it's it's all about mm. fame and money and all of those motivations that corrupt people, basically. So I still think the key lies in reconciling with his family. What he does next, you know, I hope he can reconnect with the veterans community because that means so much to him. Find purpose, love being a dad, enjoy, even though it's in Hollywood, being clear of, you know, the paps, but I can't see how that happens in Hollywood. I don't think that was a great choice. And yeah, I guess we just wait and see, don't we, the coronation and what comes next. I still love the guy though. Yeah, I love him even more than I did before, I have to admit. And, yeah. I, and I would recommend this book to anyone. Yeah, I really would. And too. I'd say, um, for me, the audio version is the way to go. <laughs> I might do both. I would like to hear him tell the story, but I've really enjoyed sitting down <laughs> with this. And I think a book requires so much more thought, so much deeper thinking than sitting down with Oprah on a couch. And I think that's where the value in, in reading the book really yes. is in the, in the depth of thought. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to explain 
an unusual economic term that's being thrown around a lot at the moment, stagflation. Um, We'll also look at the history of stagflation and how it helps us understand the strange economic times we're in right now. Listener. 